And then the reason why we sign contracts is that they're a guide for our behavior in terms of how we treat each other and what we've agreed to, right? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Digital Health Entrepreneurship with Lawrence Gerard. Today, we're going to talk about something that we all face, which is contracts. I know that probably today we've all checked the box that we agree to terms and agreement on some website that we haven't read. And today we're going to talk about an interesting question, which is really, is it immoral or unethical to breach a contract? Or is there ever a time where it's okay to breach a contract? Lawrence, why do you think this topic is something that's important to talk about on the podcast? Because typically entrepreneurship is a series of signing contracts and making agreements with the various people ranging from employees to customers to investors. And, you know, often early stage companies find themselves in a situation where they're either unable to meet an obligation or they need to breach a contract. And for first time entrepreneurs, the first time they have to breach a contract or the first time someone else breaches a contract, it's a shock because you think that, oh, this is a contract where it's like a promise. It's like a moral obligation. So the first time somebody breaches a contract that you sign, it's a shock basically. Has this kind of hit you in like, why are you thinking about this right now? Is there, um, has this been happening to you or are you, why is this an issue for you right now? Well, there's so many different situations. I mean, it's an issue for me all the time because I'm constantly signing contracts. I mean, I have a special folder in my email labeled DocuSign and I'm signing, you know, dozens of contracts a week now every day, basically. Right. And so it's always an issue. Um, but I guess, Maybe we can take a couple specific examples. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's say that you know you let's let's say that you negotiate with your investor that you're going to have 100% voting control of your company, and later on they complain about the fact that you have 100% voting control of your company. Well, guess what? That's the contract that they signed, and the reason why we sign contracts is that they're a guide for our behavior in terms of how we treat each other and what we've agreed to, right? It's, it's, a, it's a framework, right? You don't need to have a 30-page contract to come to an agreement. In fact, in many states, a verbal agreement is a, is a contract, right? But the reason why we have extensive agreements is for clarity. And every good contract lawyer knows that contracts should anticipate their own breach, right? So if somebody defaults, it should be clear, well, what is a default? And what's the penalty if you default, right? So if it's a debt contract, what's the penalty if you pay late, just like a credit card, right? or you pay your rent late, right? What's the penalty so that everybody's clear in advance so that we don't have to litigate everything. Um, so like, that's one example. I mean, I had one of my, you know, 300 plus investors complain recently that, you know, I have full voting control of the company. And it's just like, here's a copy of the contract you signed. This is how we agreed to govern the company. And it's not changing right now. Of course, let's say a VC wanted to invest 50 million or a hundred million dollars to the fruit street. And they said, look, you have to, change the structure, of course, I have the right to agree to amend that. 
right? And there might be a good reason because maybe with that $100 million, I can go on and have a bigger social impact. But, you know, absent one party wanting to change terms, it's just like, you know, this is what we signed, right? So you just touched on the idea of possibly mod- uh, possibly modifying contracts. Like when would you, you know, change like a massive contract? Like, like what, what needs to be guaranteed what needs to be committed or are you just like a steadfast guy you know you've signed something that's what it is well obviously if you think that everybody acts in their own self-interest economically then if an amendment to a contract benefits you then of course you're going to you know agree to that like let's say that simple example uh right now you work nine to five and your boss says look i want to give you a promotion but you might have to work nine to seven some days, but you're going to get paid an extra $50,000, of course, you're going to agree to that in many cases, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it benefits you economically, but you have to give something up in return. So you're saying, look, I'm going to, you know, work an extra couple hours a day, but I'm happy to get paid an extra $50,000 in exchange for that. So, you know, sometimes it benefits both parties, right? So in that situation, it's benefiting you because you're making more money. It's benefiting your employer because you're fulfilling a need for them. So sometimes it benefits both parties. I mean, it doesn't always, but but it can right. So you just talked about a hypothetical about the uh, the raise and the more hours, and that's a hypothetical contract being modified. You talked about a real contract voting rights. Uh, what other sort of Fruit Street and COVID MD related contracts are you signing with investors, maybe or employees or business partners? What's something that like that's tangible and real that our listeners can learn about? You know, in terms of digital health entrepreneurship. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, so, you know, to launch COVID-MD, we signed a bunch of um, debt financing agreements. And um, one of the terms of that agreement was that uh, basically, you know, we're going to pay these investors back on X schedule. And uh, that was the goal is to pay them back on X schedule. And we may very well do that because the company is doing quite well financially now. But at the same time, the contract also has a provision where if Fruit Street chooses to, at First Street's exclusive discretion, we can extend the payment terms by three or four months. And we're not in breach of the contract. And the reason why we built that in was because, you know, obviously entrepreneurship is unpredictable. Launching a new product during a global pandemic is unpredictable. So of course, you know, if we can get the profit back to our investors as fast as possible, we're going to do that because we're a public benefit corporation and we're focused on treating all of our stakeholders well. But on the other hand, if you know, we need a little bit more time to pay them back. Well, we anticipated that being a possibility given that we're launching a product during a global pandemic and it might take longer to, you know, launch the product than anticipated or generate revenue. Um, And so, you know, they might get a partial payment instead of a a full payment. Um, You know, some entrepreneurs might take more of the mindset of, well, I'm going to pay them as little as possible because the contract enables me to do that. And like, that's probably not the right thing to do, right? Because these are, you know, not hedge funds. These are institutional. I mean, these are individual investors that are, you know, trying to have a social impact. So, I mean, there's some level of, of morality, you know, and ethics. I mean, if you have a physician that makes an investment and, you know, they make a good faith effort and um, they need money to pay for their kid's college or something, you know, um, and the company raises $10 million, like, yeah, okay, pay them their $10,000 loan payment, right? Um, so I think there is moral and ethics in certain scenarios. I mean, um, so I think you have to think about things like that. I mean, we had, you know, an investor that was experiencing financial distress and, 
you know, we basically bought back their shares because of their, you know, really difficult life situation. And it's a public benefit corporation. You can do things that are not necessarily profitable, but benefit stakeholders like employees, shareholders, and other stakeholders like investors. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, getting back to the debt situation, um, it's an interesting dynamic because on one hand, you have your debt holders that want to get paid back. But in this situation, you also have them as equity holders. And as being on the board of directors, you have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the shareholders of the corporation. So for example, um, let's say you're a debt holder and you say, look, I want to get paid back as fast as possible, even though the contract doesn't entitle me to that. Well, I might say to you, well, look, um, you know, we're going to pay you 50% of what we expected, but you're still going to get paid back in full and make a significant profit. And uh, but you're also a shareholder. And as a shareholder, we need to be good, good stewards of your money. And we're going to pay you back on a, you know, a payment schedule that makes sense for you as a shareholder. And we have a fiduciary responsibility to you as a shareholder. So it's interesting when you have someone that's a shareholder and a debt holder, where you have to balance those two um, components because they have slightly different mindsets. Like on the debt side, you typically you know, want to get paid back slightly faster. Although you realize that if you put too much pressure on the business, it might fail. But on the equity side, it's more of a long-term view. So, right. you know, ultimately it gets down to, you know, as a shareholder, I'm actually, what I meant to say was as an officer of the company, as the director of the company, your first fiduciary responsibility is to the shareholders, not right. to the debt holders. It's slightly different, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic. So this is like getting super into the weeds of contracts, which is important. Because, I mean, we're talking about business. And like you said at the beginning, business is really just a progression of an, a, you know, a progression of agreements and contracts and stuff. It's just part of doing business. Um, is there ever a time where it makes sense to intentionally breach a contract? And is that unethical to do so? Or is there ever a time where it's okay to breach a contract? Well, let's think of an extreme example that has nothing to do with Fruit Street. Um, let's see. Let's think of a good example. Um, I mean, let's just think of something extreme like... Um, I've got one. I'm, know, thinking, maybe, I'm thinking of one like with the airlines. There were some airlines like maybe Southwest Airline. 100% of their fleet was uh, with Boeing. And I think Boeing had those uh, couple of crashes. Yeah, that's, so their entire, yeah, their entire fleet was grounded. And so that's an example where the Southwest Airlines had to, in my opinion, breach their contract and were morally obligated to because their supplier of their planes was, was screwed. But what, what sort of example are you thinking of, Lawrence? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good one just to expand on that. I mean, sometimes there's public relations components to contracts, right? I mean, imagine if Boeing would have come back and said, you know what, even though our planes are killing people, you know, we're going to enforce this contract and we're going to sue you. I mean, imagine the PR that, you know, Boeing would have had to deal with in that situation, I mean, their stock price would have, you know, plummeted, right? And obviously, like, you know, the contract at the time that they signed didn't anticipate that the planes were going to have a problem. And so it's not always possible to anticipate why a contract is going to be breached, which is why sometimes it's okay to breach a contract, right? The airline's not going to buy planes that are going to put their passengers in danger because then it's going to cause them to breach a contract with their passengers, which is to provide them with a safe, you know, obligation. So an interesting thing there is that Maybe by breaching one contract, you are withhold, you know, upholding a moral or ethical or safety obligation 
to another stakeholder. So you're avoiding breaching a second contract. So, you know, is the end result what what matters or not, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, um, here's a good example. So I love this course at Harvard called Justice, famous course. So let's say you're driving a trolley car, right? And um, you're driving a trolley car and you're the driver and you see somebody on the track that is um, one person, right? And so you, you have two choices. You can just keep going, kill the one person, right? Or you can go to the left. There's a, a way to t- turn left on the track and go the other way. But you're going to kill five people, right? So the question is, what's, what's more ethical, right? Is it better to take an intentional act to save the one person but kill the five, right? Uh, or not. So, you know, or maybe it's the opposite, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's that there's five people on the track and if you go to the left, you kill one instead, right? right? So it's like, okay, yeah, you killed somebody, but you saved five people. And and so it depends on if you believe in utilitarianism, you know, or not, right? Um, With, with you, are there any like, like make this practical for you, obviously not revealing any legal information that you can't or that this podcast will get shut down for, but like what's going on? Like, are there any contracts that you've breached or agreements you've gone back on that you would do it again in a heartbeat? Um, let's think about that one. Or the other way around, like maybe somebody's <laughs> breached a contract with you and it, you like, it made sense. Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a harder one. I'm just thinking about a good example. Um, I don't know. Let's take another quick example that's easy. I was thinking about like insulin companies, right? So, you know, they're for-profit corporations, right? So they have to charge a lot of money for insulin because they have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors. If they were a public benefit corporation, then they would have that legal protection to make a decision that's not necessarily profitable, but maybe they reduce the price so that um, people can get that life-saving medication. Um, but here's another example, maybe not specific to Fruit Street, but like, here's an example, right? Let's say you, you have a, a loan from one of your investors, right? And uh, you have to choose between making payroll, right? Or paying back your investor. And let's say that investor is like, I don't know, a multimillionaire, right? Right. So they don't, like, they need the money back eventually, but like, you know, they're not going to like be unable to pay rent. you know, pay their rent if you don't pay them back. Right. So let's say you have a choice like, okay, great. You can pay this investor back their half a million dollars on time. Right. Or you can, uh, make payroll to your employees that make $50,000 and that way they have food, right. They can pay rent. I mean, they might only have $2,000 in their bank account. Right. So, you know, is it better to pay back the person that is a multimillionaire on time and fire these employees so they don't have money to buy food or can't pay their rent? Or is it better to, um, you know, pay the investor maybe a month late or two months late, still pay them back, but you know, you don't, you don't miss payroll. Right. Um, so that's an example of a scenario that I think is probably pretty common. I mean, I think, I think all small businesses pretty commonly have to choose between payroll and XYZ contract. You know what I mean? Like obviously a lot of small businesses, businesses have debt obligations and they're probably commonly choosing between, you know, do I pay my debt obligation or do I meet payroll? Right. So what sort of um, tips do you have for, for entrepreneurs, like in terms of best practices, you know, with, with, with contracts, sometimes I, 
I make the mistake of you know getting a bit personal with them. Like I, I, I think about it too emotionally and I, I, you know, I wish I was a bit more robotic or logical when it came to like evaluating them, but I just get nervous when, when I, when I read them sometimes. Anyway, enough about me. What sort of um, tips do you have for CEOs and even for, for staff in, entrepreneur, in, in entrepreneurial situations? Well, how about investors, for example, right? Like okay. my first startup basically failed. I mean, I restarted it as Fruit Street, offered all the old investors free shares in the new company. So it didn't really fail. I mean, it continued as, as Fruit Street. But like, you know, some of the investors got pretty upset that like it wasn't maybe succeeding as quickly as they would have liked, right? And so some of those investors started defaming me on the internet, you know, calling me names, you know, call, you know call, one of them called my mother and like, you know, threatened her, right? I mean, it's that's, like, okay, that's about you as are as an investor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, he, he sent me pictures of babies, like crazy stuff, crazy, crazy stuff, right? And it's like, dude, you invested in a startup. Nine out of 10 startups failed. Like we clearly worked as hard as we possibly could, 10 hours a day to get your return on your investment. And you're just very immature because you are investing in startups without understanding that they're high risk, high reward investments. Most of them fail, right? And you know, guess what? Um, <laughs> you know, you have to. You can't be a sore loser in any part of life, right? I mean, you know, everybody had good intentions. Everybody tried their best, um, but that doesn't mean that when a business fails or an entrepreneur doesn't succeed, that you should berate them, that you should call them names, that you should threaten to ruin their reputation indefinitely. Because if investors do that, then what happens is nobody wants to start a business. Nobody wants to be an entrepreneur because they're worried about getting their reputation ruined. And luckily, most investors aren't like that. And they're very supportive. But you know, that's an example. Don't make it emotional, right? This is business, right? Or another example is like, um, I don't know, let's say you need a breach of contract. Let's say, let's say you're a small business, right? Um, and let's say you're an early stage startup, maybe you only have 10000 a month of revenue, and you took out a loan with an investor, right? Um, maybe, maybe, I mean, one time I had an investor for my first company that was basically a loan shark. I mean, this guy would lend us money on his American express and, you know, say, here's a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> here's, here's these ridiculous payment terms that are just obscene, like vergering on usury loss. But like we had to take it at the time six years ago because we didn't have any other choice. Right. And, you know, it's just like, you know, hello person, right? I'm the entrepreneur. We have decided to breach this contract, but we are doing our best to catch up on payments, right? And then, you know, instead of this person being like, well, you know, let's work on, um, you know, helping you meet your payment obligations, it becomes like, you know, this like death threat kind of thing, right? You know, uh, here's an example, right? There's all these companies that do basically receivables financing. So they'll say, great, I see that there's revenue coming into the business. Um, great. We will take 10% of your revenue on a daily basis until you pay us back, you know, 120% or 130% of what we gave you. So like that can work out pretty well to grow a business sometimes. I mean, there's usually cheaper sources of financing, but right. you know, I've noticed that like a lot of these uh, companies, and we've done that for Fruit Street. I mean, you know, a lot of these, and we've never missed a payment, but like a lot of small businesses are missing their payments to their receivables financing companies right now. Mm -hmm. And these companies are professionals, right? They're finance professionals. They don't send you death threats. They do the opposite. They say, look, we realize a lot of small businesses are struggling. And we want to help, right? We want to give you flexibility because all these years while the economy's been good, we've made a huge profit off of you. We want to take some of that profit to help you because they realize that, you know, if they start sending death threats to entrepreneurs and treating them like horribly, 
right? Those entrepreneurs are not going to succeed. So they need to support them and they, they need to show flexibility. And so, you know, it's a two-way street. Investors need to show flexibility to entrepreneurs. Debt holders need to show yeah, flexibility yeah. to entrepreneurs. You know, the same way the government's giving everybody like basically free money, right? During COVID-19, um, you know, it's, it's a two-way street. You can't expect the economy to recover if, you know, everybody that is a landlord is going to kick everybody out of their apartments. Well, guess what? You're going to have 5 million homeless people. Right. And then there's not going to be an economy to rent your apartment, right? right? So I think sometimes people forget that like, yeah, you might have the ability to legally enforce a contract, but what are the long-term unintended consequences of you doing that, right? So say that an investor um, in a business, let's take the receivables financing example. Let's say that they decide, you know what? We're going to collect all of our money, right? Well, guess what? The business might go out of business and then you might not collect all of your money. Right. So is it always the best for a debt holder to demand payment? Well, no, because if you only get 50% of your money back because you demanded payment, you know, you're not going to get the rest back. So you have to be flexible. Yeah. I think, I think that's interesting how you said that. And I think that's a good way to like kind of summarize this is like thinking about the long-term and the long-term consequences of your contract, you know, continuing on and stuff. So as we bring this to a close, everybody that's listening has contracts of some sort, whether it's with clients or with their landlords or something, specifically for business owners, uh, what would kind of be just like a bit of closing advice that you would say, like, go and look for this in your contracts or add this to your contracts? Well, I would just say that, you know, if you can be in business for a decade and never breach a contract, never pay anything late, uh, you're probably the only person on planet earth that's ever done that. So, so, um, you know, that's number one, um, you know, number two is like, you know, there's, there's clauses that lawyers commonly put into contracts that say, you know, this is the entire agreement, right? So like if you email back and forth with somebody and they agree to reduce the amount of money you owe them, you better make sure that there's nothing in there that says, this is the entire agreement. It's better to formalize contract amendments and get signatures rather than think, well, oh, this is just a small 5% you know, change to the contract. We're just going to do an email. Like Even if you trust the person, because unfortunately, relationships can go south pretty quickly in business. So just because you have this great relationship with somebody doesn't mean it's going to fall apart in a month or two. A month or two. It, might, it might, right? It could fall apart pretty quick. And so even if you have the best relationship with someone you're super optimistic. Always think before you sign a contract, every contract should think about its own breach in advance. And if it gets breached by either party, what's going to happen, right? And so some entrepreneurs, they just read these contracts, they ignore the intellectual property rights, they ignore what happens if it's breached. And that's just really not smart. I mean, you should really take contracts seriously, not just with people you think are going to have a problem with in the future, but even with like your closest friends and, you know, allies in business. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting how much contracts are probably going to come up in these conversations of building businesses. You know, we've talked about non-disparagement agreements. Now we've um, talked about, you know, when to breach a contract and stuff. So I'm curious to see over the next year uh, how often we're talking about contracts. And best yeah, but also, also, I mean, can you imagine how many contracts are being breached right now during oh COVID-19? I mean, it turned... Yeah. everybody's world upside down. I mean, I bet you that in the history of the United States, there's never been more contracts breached than right yeah. now. Millions, yeah. tens of millions, like early... probably hundreds of millions of contracts. Yeah. I had somebody breach contract like right when this whole thing started. 
And it was because of their financial position, you know, we had like a little caveat in there, like a breach fee kind of thing. But it was also like, I just given the state of everything, like we waived the fee because it was like, it's like kicking a horse while it's dying. Like sometimes you just got to amend things and stuff. Yeah. Like I was going to move into, I was looking at apartments and, um, you know, maybe let's go for another five or 10 minutes here. Cause I think it's so interesting, but like I was looking at apartments and, um, you know, somebody was supposed to move into this apartment. And then I was told by the landlord, the reason they didn't, is like their, their baby died. Like, I mean, it's just like, you're not going to enforce that, you know? Mm. Um, like that's a sure file file fire way to end up in hell. I mean, like that enforcing that one, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it's like sometimes, yes, read the contract and, um, you know, sometimes you need to enforce your rights and say, look, this is what we agreed. Right. And other times you need to be reasonable and say, well, given the circumstances weighing all the different factors, um, this is what, you know, I think is the right thing to do. Um, but, but the other thing that I really, the pet peeve of mine is to make it personal. Right. So, I mean, typically in business contracts are between businesses. Right. So I had somebody once that brought up recently that, well, what about our friendship? And I'm sitting there like, this is a person that I invited to my wedding that chose not to come. Right. And aside from that, right. I'm making it personal now. It's like, there's two businesses. <laughs> there's investors who invested millions of dollars into each business. This cannot possibly be about friendship. Like even if you start a business with your best friend, like it's just not about friendship. If you have shareholders and people that you have a fiduciary responsibility to. And so I think that sometimes people think that business is about friendship or that kind of thing because they started with friends that maybe they went to college with or whatever. But once you start managing other people's money, it's just not about friendship. It's like a doctor, right? Like, let's say you go to, let's say that, I don't know, you're like friends with a surgeon. Like, it's not about, you know, friendship at that point. Let's say that you're friends with the surgeon and you're getting towards the end of your career and you notice that like, he's getting really old and he um, is not capable of doing surgery anymore in a safe way. And you're the first one to realize that. Like, is that about friendship? No, it's about patient safety. So despite this person being your friend, you need to tell the medical director of the hospital, like this person should not be practicing surgery. And so it's okay. Like if you and I are getting a cup of coffee and like, yeah, when I buy you a cup of coffee, it's just between you and I and it's friendship, right? But when you have third parties that you have a fiduciary responsibility to, it's not about friendship. It's about a third party now. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is yes, read the contract, know what your contracts say, but also like be a decent human about it. Like there's going to be times where you kind of just have to be human with your contracts. I don't know. What are you thinking, Lee? I'm thinking it's, it's about being realistic. I think we bring so much crappy, like unrealistic expectations into contracts. Like, and there's a lot of hope. Like we hope this will happen and we wish that to happen, but it's, there's a, there's the hard reality, which is just a little bit different. I think that's, that's well, the, also, that's what... also, I think the thing is like some people hate lawyers. They hate using lawyers. I love using lawyers, not to sue people necessarily, but to clarify upfront what the contracts are, right? Like imagine if you got married and you never had the discussion with your wife about whether or not you want to live in the suburbs or the city or whether or not you wanted to have kids or not, right? It's just like the reason why you should use lawyers is to prevent major litigation and dispute in the future. It just makes life better, right? Just clarify up front what we're all agreeing to. Everybody do your best to follow the agreement. 
right? And don't do anything with bad intentions. If you have to breach the contract because, you know, of unforeseen circumstances, fine. But don't intentionally, you know, ignore the contract. Like I know people in business where they don't even respect the law. They don't respect the fact that contracts exist, right? It's just like a total extreme. And so everybody should just use lawyers more, use contracts more, but then don't just trust your lawyer. Like you think about it. What could go wrong here? And let's spell it out in advance. What's going to happen? I'll just give another quick example. Like we've hired like a very expensive firm to do something for us. I'm not going to say what it is, but you know, instead of hoping for the best that you're going to be able to pay this company on time because it's such a large seven figure dollar amount, well, why not just negotiate financing terms and say, look, you know, let's align our incentives in a way where when the company does successful, the vendor does is successful, right? So like, just think about in advance what could go wrong and then just design the contract that way. There's a whole art of contract design. So, so my closing point is always think about a contract anticipating its own breach. What's going to happen if it doesn't go as planned? Well, another intense episode, Lawrence. Yeah, this <laughs> is exciting. Thank you, Lee. It's because of your tantalizing questions, Lee, and your Australian <laughs> accent. Hi, <laughs> right, gents. Thanks so much, Lawrence. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Digital Health Entrepreneurship with Lawrence Gerard. If you haven't already, take a look at some of our other episodes and leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. We will see you tomorrow on Digital Health Entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm.